Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. I'm your host Owen Connolly taking you through another weekly wrap of news from in and around the sports industry. Do hope you're well. Uh, very happy to be back, very happy to be joined once again by Sports Pro Digital Editor Tom Bassam. Hello Tom. Hello Owen. And back after a short spell away, or away from the podcast, he's still been at work. Uh, Sports Pro Senior Writer Ed Dixon. Hello, Ed. Hi, Owen. A few things to get through today. We're going to be hearing in the second part of the podcast from Tony Grillo, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at Green Park Sports. He's going to be talking about the mobile metaverse that they're trying to build for some of their partners who include the uh, NBA and La Liga, among others. And we're going to be spending some time as well reflecting on events at Madison Square Garden this weekend. But before that, a little bit of football business or uh, soccer business to update on one of which tom we keep coming back to this topic and we don't think we're quite at the end of the story yet but we have a preferred bidder for chelsea football club yeah we do it's todd bowley the consortium fronted by the la dodgers co-owner that sort of that news came out in uk media on friday yeah so it's probably was the one that everyone would have predicted I think nothing controversial about him particularly he owns a successful US sports franchise he's got the money in place he's got some interesting people attached to his bid it's probably the the safest bet I think the rain group could have made although there was a there was a spanner in the works uh, that came in at the same time there's some disagreements I think over exactly how much this this offer is worth and how serious it is but um, the man regularly dubbed Britain's richest man uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe He's, he's also now made an offer, although I don't quite know how this will work as the, the deadline for bids with the Rain Group passed. But he's come in with what's been reported as a £4.25 billion bid and has spent the weekend chatting to Chelsea Supporters Trust. So it seems at least like he's serious, but it may be a little bit, a little, a case of a little bit too little too late from, uh, from the Ineos petrochemicals baron but it's uh yeah it's nonetheless a sort of an interesting twist i guess in a in a saga that's been running for a little while now yeah it was an interesting twist i mean i don't know how much you've spoken to people about this but the motivations behind the jim ratcliffe bid are intriguing shall we say he was linked with a bid for chelsea a couple of years ago there's some indication that he may have had some semi-serious talks around that um eventually decided it wasn't it was too much money basically for his purposes at the time and he he went with nice yeah nice yeah the uh, the motivations uh, yeah i don't i don't completely understand it from his perspective he said at the time it was it was too expensive and it's not got any cheaper i, I guess perhaps they're a slightly more distressed asset than they were when he was in talks with the Bramwich a couple of years ago but other than the fact that it's readily available uh, the club there's there's not too much that's that's changed from from that point. I, I don't think. Yeah, I guess. Um, I, yeah, I guess one of the the interesting things here is that Roman Framovich actually does have to approve this deal. Like, yeah, like he has to have final say, regardless of what the government, kind of the UK government, do with the frozen asset. It, it, the, the final decision does rest with him. So, the Rain Group could potentially make a recommendation based on the criteria they've set out and the process they've conducted. 
But if Roman Ramovich likes Sir Jim Ratcliffe's bid more than he likes Toboli's bid, then he can take that part of that Jim Ratcliffe bid. Also involved as a public statement where he talked about the continuing to fund the team, essentially, which is not something I think that people really expect from the US bidders. They're not expecting that to that to mean that Chelsea continue to be funded in the same way that Roman Abramovich has funded them, which is basically just here's a blank check whenever we need one. Yeah. Um the 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 Ratcliffe Ratcliffe bid seems to perhaps have a little bit more of that in it, maybe in that regard is uh is slightly more romantic for Chelsea fans. Well this is the thing, and it, it was the both the timing of the bid and that statement taken together make you wonder whether and you know we've been we've tended to tiptoe around Chelsea news a little bit because it is an unfolding story and um uh, and we are around certain deadlines and and all sorts when it comes to the bidding process um but it felt like a bid that if it failed, it wasn't the end of the world for his purposes, if you see what I mean. Like he's saying, I'm going to be your dream owner if I come in. I'm going to invest a lot in the community. You're going to continue to see similar levels of investment um, that you've seen in the Abramovich era, or perhaps not similar levels, but at least I'm not going to balk at that, as you say. You know, he, he he's going to make that a, an ambition of his. Um, and he has been on the record in the past as saying he sees his investment in sport as a bit of fun, ultimately, something that, you know, he gets some enjoyment out of, the Ineos name gets out there, and um, the people involved with it are kind of energised by it. I mean, that's not really why he's doing it, is it? And we all know that he has kind of political um, motivations around that that to do with the reputation of, of his company and, and some of their activities and, and the kind of public reception of that. It does make you wonder, I mean, perhaps we will discover that that there is more momentum behind this bid than there now seems to be but if he's ever involved in in this marketplace again then uh he immediately comes with kind of white knight credentials off the back of that yeah uh yeah he said he certainly does i mean i think like he's it, it seems like he's been a pretty good owner for nice uh they've been reasonably successful under him his investments in cycling have been I mean, the, that was described as it basically kept the most expensive road cycling team on the road uh, and he didn't ask too many questions. They, they've they not quite had the success that they had before he took over, but I think that's more to do with the team and the individuals that they've got as opposed to him owning the team. Um, they did still win one of the Grand Tours last year. So, yeah, I, he, yeah, he does come with that kind of reputation. And it's an interesting kind of, it's been an interesting transition, I guess, for Jim Ratcliffe because he was one of those individuals a few years ago that was always touted as, here's a rich British man who's capable of investing in sport. Why doesn't he buy this thing? Uh, and now he is that rich British man who invests in sport and, and buys these things. Yeah. What do we think we're going to see potentially in a in a Todd Bowley-led Chelsea ownership group? I mean, we, we've got what they're talking about at the moment and we, we, we have certain details of what they will have discussed with Rain Group and um, and what will be being assessed at the moment, but also we've got their track record with the Dodgers in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I don't think their, their, their track record with the Dodgers is anything that Chelsea fans should be particularly concerned about. I mean, I think the best case scenario here is Liverpool. You can't really argue too much with where Liverpool are at the moment in terms of being a well-run, successful football club. It's essentially the same kind of model, a couple of front men for a, for a larger consortium of sports investors, they seek to extract value wherever possible. They um, employ like, modern techniques and approaches to business, which perhaps not all football clubs in certainly Europe 
do. so yeah, I think that's what I think that's what we'd see. It's a safe option, and doesn't necessarily mean and safe doesn't necessarily mean bad. I don't think for Chelsea yeah. in this situation. Ed, yeah, on the commercial front, without wanting to to speculate too much, but given he's been named the, the preferred bidder, let's let's speculate away. Um, he's reportedly not going to be uh, looking to continue the three deal because that's very much up in the air. So we may potentially be seeing more of a an American flavour to to some of Chelsea's well to Chelsea's new front of shirt sponsor. Uh, and, and beyond that, it would take uh, it would mean the number of U, uh, North American owners in Premier League clubs would outnumber British ones for the first time. I think it's seven to six, so that's a, another mini milestone, as well as it potentially being a record sale for a for a sports team. Mm. It's an interesting one. I mean, it's the kind of thing that gets described as a, a factoid, but is not really. It's uh, I think there's again picking up on some of the conversations we've had in the last few weeks about um, the attitude towards you know european super league style discussions um it's it's having people whose background is informed by uh american sports businesses um is going to add some other dimensions to that for sure anyway i mean we we will i'm sure hear more about chelsea in the next few days and uh and it is still a process that we're expecting well i think it needs to wrap up in the next few weeks because their license uh, with the British government to um, uh, to continue operating uh, runs out, I think, at the end of May. So th- that's either going to have to be revised or they're going to have to have a new owner in place. So uh, expect more on that very, very shortly. Um, Chelsea not playing in the Champions League this week. They went out in the in the quarterfinals. As we're speaking, we're, we're waiting for the second leg of the UEFA Champions League, but people will have um, the UEFA Champions League semi-finals, I should say, uh, but people will know who the winners are by the time they hear this. More reports this week that UEFA are looking at uh, reforming the final stages of the Champions League and going into more of a kind of final four or championship week kind of affair. I mean, this is a story that dates back a couple of years to... uh, the the pandemic final eight they had to put on um, in Portugal that year, which got some people thinking about the possibilities of that kind of you know tournament style conclusion to the Premier Club competition. So that, along with the more contentious or other contentious anyway reforms around qualification and everything else, um, is is on the table for the the next few seasons. Um, and Chelsea will be a part of that. You would expect. Um, elsewhere in UEFA land, they have extended their ban of Russia and the Russian uh, Football Federation, which means, guys, no Euro of 2028 in Russia. They're out of the bidding. I mean, was that the first instance of major tournament bid as trolling exercise, do we think? <laughs> uh, I, I would certainly say so. It certainly worked. Yeah, yeah it, it did work. Not that surprising, I don't think. Although... I guess there's kind of been a bit of a shift of a narrative on this regard, isn't there? I mean, like, why is this any different in particular than Wimbledon banning Russian tennis players, which, which weirdly, I think a lot of people who argue that Russia shouldn't be allowed to play football will argue that Daniel Medvedev should be allowed to play tennis. I don't quite see how you can hold both positions at the same time, but maybe that's just me being short-sighted. It's kind of not not that surprising. Rush, the Russian Football Union have been to cast to try and get this overturned and failed. Uh, it, it probably would be quite galling to have to watch Russia take take part in these kind of tournaments and create a lot of awkward moments. So 
probably best that it was avoided. Uh, and yeah, sorry, Russian athletes, sorry, Russian footballers. It's not your fault, but that's just how, that's just how, has, I think that's the way it has to be. Yeah, and of course, it means that Russia, as I think we we this is a rubber stamping of that, but Russia out of um, Women's Euro 2022 and Portugal confirmed as their replacements in England this summer. Yeah, it seems mad to think that something as black and white as war has created such a grey area. Um, yeah. In that, as going back to Tom's point, you could, in theory, support the, the ban on Russia from uh, football, but as I say, potentially be a bit disgruntled that Medvedev isn't going to be at, at Wimbledon. Um, again, you can, and obviously other opinions are available, but something something is, some something of, the, of this nature to have, have produced such a, a sort of a, a divide and 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 a debate. More importantly, I think means that um, this is going to rumble. It certainly is, and um, unfortunately, yeah, the events on the ground in in Ukraine continue to be uh, quite concerning, which is really the important thing here. And I think you know where we where we kind of need to keep uh, some perspective. Um, continuing one last bit of um, of football news, uh, FIFA has named Algorand. Its latest sponsor It's going to be a regional supporter in North America and Europe of the Qatar 2022 World Cup. And it's also going to be a uh, sponsor of the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand next year. Um, any perspective on this, guys? Or is this, is this just kind of another, another drumbeat in the kind of blockchain sponsorship expansion uh in the sports industry yeah i think there was one interesting like one aspect that i picked up on about this and that's going to be that algorand are also going to sort of play a um a, a sort of bit of a advisory role in uh for fifa as part of this um so that's advising on their on their blockchain strategy um and i guess what that what that says is that like Governing bodies have had ne- have never had any reason to understand the metaverse previously. There was there was no such thing. Uh, so they're they're having to turn to people to to help them with these with their like with their efforts in these areas because there's just not that sort of knowledge base that exists. Um, and I, I think like I mean we've we've profiled chief technology officers before on on Sports Pro, but increasingly i think that's going to become a valuable position within any any major organization big company or in the sports space because all of these things take understanding and it takes a specialist and that knowledge isn't necessarily just there in the same way that it would be with say marketing or selling media rights for example yeah absolutely and i think this is um a complicated marketplace in more ways than one as well the the overlaps between blockchain and another kind of and uh, crypto and other web three technologies is um, complicated, both technically and increasingly kind of uh, reputationally as well. And I think um, how FIFA chooses to um, to deploy this particular partnership is, is going to be really interesting. Interesting tidbit from this country in women's football, a crowd of a little over 20,000 at St. James's Park to watch fourth fourth tier in uh, in women's club football, Newcastle United at home. But if you really wanted to see evidence of the appetite for women's sport, Ed, in the last few days, you'd have had to look to Madison Square Garden. Katie Taylor beating 
Amanda Serrano in, I think it could be described as a bit of a modern classic um, at, at the uh, at the Garden in New York. The first time two women have headlined a boxing promotion there and uh, it really did not disappoint. But you spent some time before the event looking into the work that had gone into putting it together, looking into kind of some of the hopes and expectations for it, um, what it might mean as kind of a watershed moment in women's boxing and, and the path that had led there. What, what were some of the things you, you discovered? Yeah, I mean, just just before we dive into that, just subjectively, the the, the, the whole fight, the whole event was just was just great, <laughs> which was just quite refreshing to see. You had you had two two of the sports best who were impeccable in the build up, and they put on a great show, and it was um, topped off by Jake Paul losing a million pound bet. So um, <laughs> more of the same, please. <laughs> but yeah, no. So I spoke to. Um, uh, Frank Smith, uh, Matchroom Boxing CEO and DAZN's uh, EVP, Joe Markowski, and just to sort of get their thoughts on what they were hoping to get out of the event. Um, and actually, Joe was very, very candid. And he said that people are going to say that this is, you know, think it's, it ties into, you know, there's a degree of box ticking and 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 CRS. But he said, to be blunt, this we see this as a a sound investment. They're two of the sports best. There's huge interest. They were expecting MSG to be a sellout. I think it was. And they said, it's just, it's just a sound investment. It just so happens that they happen to be women and no female fighters have headlined MSG before. So it has added another, another flavor to the, to, to the event. You know, it was, they were very happy to jump on peddling, you know, this is for history, but um, you know, whatever way you look at it, it just, just as a sporting event, it was, I think it was more than they would have could have could have hoped for, to be honest. The quality, and I, I highly recommend anyone who hasn't, uh, who who might be interested in boxing and hasn't caught any of it yet, to um, to seek out whatever rerun or highlights package you can find because it is just relentless and extremely high quality uh, contest. What had the road been? I mean, Katie Taylor, arguably the highest profile figure in women's boxing history, and she has an extraordinary story of her own both in terms of being given the opportunity to box and then goes to the Olympics in, in 2012 and again in 2016 and kind of steals the show and then reaches out to Eddie Hearn at Matchroom and says, look, can we make something happen? And, and you know, her, her professional career since then has has been about, I suppose, creating that credibility and that that seal of quality that, that she brings to, to Matchroom events. And, you know, what what's, what's some of the story that's led up to this point? Yeah, I mean, time will only do Katie Taylor more favours. I mean, what she has done for women's boxing is, I think, extraordinary. And when you you see, you know, she's got that amateur style, to the way she fights, you know, she's got an impeccable record professionally and at an amateur level. And she's not the most forthcoming in interviews. I mean, she does, you know, she, she gives them out, she plays her role, but they're not her, you know, they're not high on her priority list. Um, she's a model professional and, uh, you know, in a world where, well, in a sport where often shouting louder can do a lot of favours, it's actually quite refreshing to see that. Um, but the fight was, that fight has been touted for a number of years. It got pushed back because of COVID. I mean, Frank Smith said it was probably worth waiting for. It's grown to the size it deserves to be. own uh, was expecting a lot of interest from the casuals. They're expecting it to be one of their highest rated fights um, of this year. So all signs point to it. And and I think crucially, they're not, they, they were not going to let this be sort of, they don't want this to be the peak of their 
of their women's of their women's boxing coverage they say it's very much as i say it's going back to that watershed moment they want it to be you know a rising tide floats all boats um and there was this great moment actually after all this all this build up all this hype um you know where katie taylor's star at the professional level has just steadily risen and of course amanda not to forgetting amanda serrano who's a seven weight world champion there's this great moment when they when they come together at msg you've got the crowd roaring and you know Katie Taylor's got this icy stare and yet Amanda Serrano is just at speaking at her. This is, you know, I can't remember the exact words, but it was like, this is crazy. This is, this is crazy. This is amazing. This is unbelievable. And, you know, she could, she couldn't believe it. And I think, you know, I think it was, you could see that they without wanting to be too grand. You could really get the sense that they were both part of history, um, which is always nice to see. And I think it's what they deserved really after, um, after, after the build up and the show they put on. Yeah, absolutely. The next step for these for these two, we think there's going to be a push to try and get a contest on at, um, at Croke Park in Dublin. Now, there are complications around that because there has been some difficulty in the past few years getting professional boxing matches sanctioned in, uh, in the Republic of Ireland because of the man who, uh, not directly, because there have been acts of violence around professional boxing promotions, which may or may not have something to do with the fact that Daniel Kinahan uh, was involved with a number of professional fighters for a very long time. But in any case, that there, there might be some hurdles, but they think that that's where they can go next with these two, which would be extraordinary, pushing for a, a huge crowd, maybe four times as many at Croke Park. Um, outside of that, what are DAZN's plans and what are Matchroom's plans and what are some of the plans from other promoters and other broadcasters uh, around boxing to, to take women's boxing to perhaps not take it to another level but make sure that this is the level because you're right this this is we talk about Katie Taylor's story but this is two generational talents um, and there will not be that many fights like this that you can kind of hang everything on but you do need to make sure that there's depth and that there's uh, you know a, a kind of sustainability around women's boxing over the next decade or so. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly the conversation has changed when money's involved. <laughs> Who'd have thought it? Uh, but the, I think what we're seeing now is that, crucially, there are multiple matches to be made in, in women's boxing. A, a common criticism of it, because obviously it, it's it's been you know, marginalised until, you know, until recent years, really, certainly the last decade. But the, the upside of that is actually when these talents come through, making the the fights that bring in, you know, the commercial interest, the, you know, the, the broadcast revenues and all the rest of it, they're, they're, they're much easier to make because... It, so it, it afford you know it's 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 a useful thing to have and of course the and of course that means it's going to result in in quicker growth and um, yeah a rematch would be great but if not again the average fan is talking about other other alternatives which would have been um, which you know would have been unprecedented a few years ago Michaela Meyer who fights a divisional two below has talked up fighting Katie Taylor that would be a great a great matchup um, in the summer there's a potential fight between Clarissa Shields and Savannah Marshall. Um, you know, you're 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 reeling you're reeling names off which you just couldn't you dare say you couldn't have done a couple of years ago. So it shows that it shows the trajectory in women's boxing is on. Although it, it is a bit of a reminder that um, a certain certain promoters who were perhaps cynical have had to change their tune even reluctantly. But it's 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 great it's great to see um, and it and it offers it offers. It offers opportunity for all stakeholders. The crucially, the women's fighters they you know they they see the opportunity to really make a statement, sort of 
build their own brand in a sport which is because Katie Taylor's 35 she's not going to go on forever there's an opportunity for them to be seen as the face of of, of women's boxing once Katie Taylor hang, hangs up the gloves or even usurper um in the next you know couple of months or year so it's there's a lot of lot of exciting times for for people who are making the fights and indeed the people who are stepping into the ring yeah and as you say money money may have changed a few attitudes among uh some of the people who um uh, who put these things together um the lesson i suppose that design have learned elsewhere which is you know they are the uh uefa women's champions league global broadcast partner they have a kind of bespoke arrangement with youtube for um for those broadcasts but they've they're learning about the audience that's there and the potential that's there for for other ways of kind of uh, of marketing and, and bringing partners in and, and all the rest of it. When I suppose when you're growing something and and if you're able to do it seriously and with intent, there's a lot of upside when you're growing it. And I, I guess that will be the other thing that brings people into this space. That feature is still on the Sports Pro website and uh, well worth checking out for a kind of broader view on the state of women's boxing just now. I'm sure. Uh, it will not be the last that you read about it in the next few months. But we will leave it there for now and go under the radar. Tom. Again, I sort of wish that Steve McCaskill was here to to explain this in full. But um, <laughs> yeah, we've got some more Dow action in the big three, which is uh, Ice Cube's um, three-on-three basketball league. Um, they basically, my understanding is that they essentially put up the league, that is, put up, put up stakes for sale by an nft a bit like buying a i don't know a, a podcast membership for example and you pay in different tiers so the top tier of that was actually to have some significant ownership say over the big three team this this team in particular was the killer threes what i meant the one dow so the dow being um the gods which is on the solana blockchain thank you very much Stephen caskill for your info there um <laughs> They bought they bought all available twelve uh, uh, NFTs in in the Killer Threes at a cost of um, six hundred twenty five thousand uh, dollars, and there's no sort of no one said how much of the team that is, but I mean six hundred twenty five thousand dollars for a a sports franchise which doesn't really have a value like there's there is there's no one's no one's ever bought a big a big three team before. Um, they have minority investors, but similarly, no one knows how much of a percentage of that team is, but you, it's not going to be insignificant. It's going to be, I don't know, I'd, I'd probably guess between 15 and 25% Q Ice Cube in my, uh, in my DMs telling me to go and check out their finances. But you're welcome, Ice Cube, by the way. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it, it, it's just, it's, it's that's a bit that's a big stake. It's um, it's going to be an interesting use case for uh, for a DAO um, in running a team. It's going to be a bit more than just like painting the walls of the changing rooms or picking the colours for the away kits shorts, which other NFT initiatives have been sort of pegged with doing. Uh, so yeah, that's why I picked it out. I I don't particularly know how it's going to play out. What the relationships are is kind of a bit unclear, but it it's continues it, it continues a trend which we saw with Sale GP, who's actually not sold anything yet. But uh, this is a, a done deal in in that regard, and therefore one to track. Definitely, and I won't pretend to know what's going to be coming next in that particular uh, league or um, with that particular purchase. But I think that it, it, 
they're going to have kind of, um, yeah, rules of gravity all of their own, I think, in these mechanisms and these markets. Um, Ed, anything that you'd pick out? Well, firstly, I think this podcast is doing wonders for the Steve McCaskill brand. <laughs> <laughs> but, but beyond that, um, one that caught my eye and uh, Kian Brittle, our motorsport writer, uh, covered it covered it today was uh, Audi and Porsche's entry into F1. It's finally happening. 2026 has been earmarked. Uh, and all it took was uh, some an, en- an engine overhaul and the opportunity for Volkswagen to to spin that and say they're part of the, um, you know, this is the sustainability uh, juggernaut. Um, you know, so sorry, I don't want to sound too cynical because sustainability is obviously a good thing. But um you know, maybe maybe I've been following Formula One for too long, but I think what we what so yeah, so we do know that they're going to they're aiming to join in 2026. I think how that uh, is going to manifest, we're still not entirely sure. We do know that Porsche's efforts are further along than Audi's. Seems to me the most viable, the most obvious route is obviously that partnership with Red Bull's new engine division, which is um, there've been reports on that they've been close to a close to a tie up there for a couple of months now. Beyond that, Audi looks more likely to enter as a you know as, as a team outright um, which obviously would mean it would have to buy out an existing entrance so that could make for uh, an interesting and indeed expensive move um, I mean who that would be you know cue the rumor mill I mean they were linked with McLaren McLaren poured cold, cold water on that but that seems to be off the table but who knows stranger things have happened Williams what they were linked with as well but obviously they've been they were acquired uh, Aston Martin, it seems it seems difficult that Lawrence Stroll would give up that much control. Another option is Sauber. I'm not going to name all the Formula One teams, I promise. But those are, pro- those are probably- <laughs> <laughs> Mercedes having cold feet. No, but those are probably those are the four that have been touted. Um, so we'll, I guess we'll see. You know, like everything, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But um, it's it's two big brands that have have just you know, have decided that if the Formula One behemoth is 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 too big to ignore now. So um and it and it ties into Formula One's desire to have more manufacturers joining and and part of these uh, part of these new this these new these new powertrain plans is to attract more teams. So it's in theory it's a it's a win for all concerned. The knock on effects of this will be something to follow through the rest of motorsport as well, because of course these are two brands who are active in other championships and I think the more marquee brands that kind of get drawn towards Formula One uh, the more interesting that is for for everybody else or the more consequential that potentially is for everybody else in the world of motorsport one more from me uh, there's been a bit of activity in terms of investment around cricket both into and from the United States of America so Shah Rukh Khan who is the uh uh, who fronts the Knight Riders group, which owns the Kolkata Knight Riders in the IPL, as well as the um, Trinbago Knight Riders in uh, the Caribbean Premier League. His vehicle has confirmed that it's going to be investing in a new 10,000-seater cricket stadium just outside Los Angeles um, in Irvine, I believe. Um, it's going to be designed by HKS. It, I think they've suggested that they'll invest around $30 million. It might be involved in the LA 2028 Olympics if cricket gets the nod there. And it might also be involved in the 2020 World Cup, which the US is expected to host a few games in alongside 
West Indies. So that's something. Major League Cricket also involved in in that venture, and we should see some more traction for that competition in the next couple of years. But and that's interesting cricket within the US. Um, we've also seen reports, Ed, of uh, the Rajasthan Royals uh, welcoming a trio of US athlete investors, Chris Paul from the NBA, as well as Larry Fitzgerald and Kelvin Beecham from the NFL. So, yeah, I think, you know, maybe a matter of time before we start seeing more interest in uh, in cricket generally and particularly in the IPL from the US. Let's see on that one. Definitely, um, definitely early stages in that regard. Uh, another story that caught my eye just this morning, and this is just to bridge us into part two, really. Um, but Syria showed a game between AC Milan and Fiorentina on the uh, metaverse platform, the Nemesis, which is an indication that more and more rights holders are getting interested in how they can uh, attract fans into digital spaces and attract fans through digital spaces um, to their broadcast and uh, and to make connections with their competitions. Green Park Sports is a company that works with the likes of Major League Soccer, La Liga, uh, Esports League of Legends, and the NBA. And it's created what it describes as a mobile metaverse, which is a kind of progenitor to what people might think that kind of experience can look like. Uh, You've got avatars dressed in digital merchandise, communicating with friends, playing quizzes and other games to earn in-world currency and win other digital items. There are plans to tie that into NFTs, of course, and to reward fans for their real-world activities as well. Uh, The whole thing is in beta testing at the moment, but Green Park did secure $31 million in Series B funding last October. Well, I spoke to Tony Grillo, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at Green Park Sports during Sports Pro Live last week at the Kia Oval. Uh, he went into the concept and where it might be going, touched on some of the sensitivity, shall we say, in the Web3 space just now, and explained what he thinks an environment like Green Park can offer. And that's coming up just after this. Tony Grillo, Chief Strategy Officer at Green Park Sports. Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. How are you finding uh, Sports Pro Live? How are you finding the Kia Oval so far? Uh, it's wonderful. I just got here a little late, as you know, <laughs> but I think um, really my first time spending a meaningful time, which has only been two days in London, um, and it's been fantastic. So excited to be here and, and to see everyone. Great stuff. Let's, um, I mean, you're here to talk about sport in the metaverse, which feels like a big nebulous topic. Maybe you can give us some grounding and some context and, and talk a bit about what Green Park Sports actually does, what that means in kind of a, a tangible sense. Yeah, we always start with you know what we're trying to do if you put all the buzzwords to the side, whether it's metaverse, whether it's Web3, whether it's ownership, like just starting with the fans. Um, for us, it was about really building a parallel fan world um, that meets the digital age for the next generation. So when you think about the hundreds of millions of fans that in the real world, whether they followed on linear television, whether they followed via social media, all of their favorite clubs and players, uh, we wanted to take that into more of a virtual environment, similar to what you might see in other mass adoption video games that are out there. Um, and so for us, it was how do we build a character-driven platform that really evolves with your fandom, where you can go from being an ordinary fan to an extraordinary fan and working with the official leagues and teams and players along the way to really bring that authenticity into our virtual world. So you're working with the likes of the NBA, with La Liga, who you're, you're speaking with alongside today. 
how do those partnerships work, first of all? What, and, and, and we're talking about mobile gaming, basically, aren't we, as, as the kind of initially the, the interface for all Yeah, this. initially is the right, the right way to think about it because it's really about how do we build a space where people can, can join each other. And mobile is the most accessible platform worldwide, so that's where we start. But thinking about desktop, console, VR, like those are all platforms where eventually uh, we want to be able to have that multi-tenant approach to being able to jump into Green Park. Uh, the way that our partnerships really work is we're a licensee of the leagues in that we're licensing to take their marks into our space. Uh, and then we're really building virtual worlds around those league partners that we bring in. So if you jump into Green Park today and we're live in early access in the App Store in the U.S. and Canada, um, you'll re- realize that you can jump into what we refer to as watch parties or match parties for any game that's happening that day. Um, so you can jump into the NBA, you can jump into La Liga, MLS, or LCS, which is League of Legends North America. Uh, and when you jump into that space, you're around other fans. So your avatar is around other avatars. You're playing prediction games against each other to try to earn things and, and really try to level up or outpace the others in the game. And you're socializing with other people. So you're jumping in with your friends and, and you're really um, kind of proving your fandom and kind of strutting your stuff around others. And, and the way that you really show that is two ways. One is how is your progress? So are you a kind of basic level fan or have you made it to being an epic fan or kind of that epic supporter? Uh, And the other one is what does your avatar look like? What are the things that you've earned? Uh, Because an epic fan is going to be decked out in the best stuff for Real Madrid or Sevilla. Uh, Whereas a fan who just jumped in is just going to have our basic sweatsuit that says fan across the front. And do you see it as a product for fans or for gamers? So this has been an evolution for us. I think in the beginning it was that next generation is gamers. They are gamers, I should say. And so if we truly want them to be fans, we need to really build fandom from the ground up as being a game. I think what it's really evolved into for us is that it's an experience with friends. It's a social experience. And that is some level of what I refer to as just like your influentials, which are going to be people who are fans, but then also a lighter, more fun way for people who aren't necessarily your core fans to jump in with their friends. And so I think it becomes more of a social experience than it does a game, but there's games that have to help augment that experience because that's how you create competition amongst fans and amongst friends. Yeah, and at the moment it's kind of, uh, it's built around your aesthetic. You've got these little character avatars and stuff. Is that that a point of differentiation? Is that like a a point of identity for you? Is that technologically driven? (laughs) What's the... um... Yeah, there's a lot behind that. So... um, sometimes hard to express even in person, never mind just over audio. But uh, when you do think about what we're doing with our characters, you know, the name Green Park really came from being the, the pitch is green. We're building kind of a theme park for fans. Uh, and really that's evolved into building homes for fans in our, in our universe. But the Greenie is the character that we refer to. And the, and the whole point of starting out with uh, the Greenie was that every fan when they jump in starts at the same level. And so they need to look and feel like they are the same until they evolve into being a more epic fan. So you can think of it as being almost like an amoeba-like creature that over time progresses into being a mammal or a human over time. And so that is the greenie, that character. The tech aspect of it is all of the gear that we're building. So we have just under 5,000 virtual gear items for our avatars that are all based on real life. Um, it, not based on real life, but use the brands um, to create things in our world, like the glowing um, Barcelona hat or Real Madrid, and, and that's how we can take you to that to that next level. And because of that, all the meshes are built around our character. So if you just plugged another avatar in, we would actually have to change all of the geometric shapes of what we're doing. Yeah. What are you finding so far? You, you 
as you say, you're in a kind of beta phase, a testing phase at the moment. What are you finding so far is effective in engaging fans and creating this kind of social gaming experience that you're talking about? Probably the biggest thing we're seeing is that context is everything. Um, when we bring in fans for, that are coming from similar experiences, uh, and one of the things that we've done are, are running QR codes from fans who are actually already watching the game together, that their time in-app goes up 2 to 3x. And, and that's really important because as you think about traditional mobile user acquisition or game user acquisition, not only is it expensive, um, but you're also just kind of dropping people into a game without context, and a lot of it is single-player utility. So for us, when we see more people, kind of the more people we see in app at the same time, the longer their session times tend to be, uh, and the more that they come back, which, again, makes sense. Fans like to be around other fans. Let's talk a bit about what's powering this. You, I mean, actually, first of all, you've just had uh, a funding round complete in the last couple of months. What has that enabled you to do? Where, where does that take you in terms of your maturity or development? Yeah, so we, we recently raised our Series B, which was a $31 million round. Um, so we've raised over $50 million in capital, which is a lot for a startup. Um, but it also takes a lot to go and build what we're building. I mean, you mentioned at the very beginning, kind of talk through Green Park and how you think about the metaverse. And we started with our concept. Well, that concept started almost four years ago when we really started to think about this, building it, talking to leagues, talking to players, like what are you looking for and what does it take to evolve into that? Um, and so... Really for us, it is about time and it's about really trying to get it right because of time. Um, you know, our chief product officer always says it's a state, it's not a date. That's really what it comes down to in terms of when Green Park is, is ready for big time, so to speak. Um, and so what that capital really allows us to do is, is A, bring in the right people uh, and strengthen the group that we have that's helping to build this experience. And B, I would say it, it does allow that team to, to have more time. So it brings in the resources and it allows us to really build into that fun experience that, that we need to get to. Um, some portion of that goes to licenses, certainly, uh, but not the bulk of it. The bulk of it is really about focusing on development. And what's the, what's the economy of the game world built on? Obviously, when we talk about Web3, we're talking about blockchain technology, we're talking about NFTs, that sort of stuff. Um, is, is it an NFT-based game? Is it, is it, is it going to develop into a play-to-earn game? What's your vision as far as that goes? <clears throat> Again, it kind of goes back to what are we trying to accomplish? We're, we're trying to reward fans as much as any platform that's out there. And innately, that's where Web3 comes in. That's why NFTs and tokens are, are so important to that experience. The app that we have in the App Store right now is a free-to-play experience, and those are our licenses that we're working on with the leagues. Um, we're going to be announcing soon our first league that has gone to Web3 rights, which would be basically all of the digital gear items that we have in-game can be NFTs, which is really just another tier of rarity for what we can do. <clears throat> the, the easiest way to think about it would be if you were playing a game or you were at a stadium and, and you won something that anyone could win, that's cool. But what if you won something that was only one of 10 um, or it was you know that signed pair of shoes that was one of five and you just happened to be the lucky one who was there? Um, those are the types of experiences we're going to be doing, and that allows us to evolve into an experience that uh, I think there's a, there is a delineation we put between the, the play-to-earn games that we've seen really early on, where people are grinding through games that aren't necessarily that fun just to make money, uh, and experiences where over time, players are rewarded for the time that they put into games. And, and you know, our, our team, our chief product officer, and our CEO feel really strongly that that's where games are going. It's kind of that evolution that was first into a free-to-play experience, which was scary for gamers, and then into that play and earn experience. Uh, which yeah, because of course, important. that takes you into an area that 
there's a lot of sensitivity around in the sports industry at the moment, um, particularly, you know, the kind of reputational side from a rights holder perspective when you get into that world of speculative NFTs as speculative assets. Um, are, you, are you trying to create a distance between yourselves in that space or is it, how would you differentiate the two? Yeah, it, it's our North Star to make sure that fans come first. And so I think one of the key differentiators you'll hear as I talk about it is rewards, rewards, rewards. Like that is how we think about it in terms of in our economy right now or our game economy. um, We hold the most legendary stuff for those who accomplish the most incredible feats in Green Park or who are there the most. And that's why rewards are going to fit in as we think about what NFTs mean. It's being rewarded with something rare. Uh, of course, there will be things that are for purchase as well, and it helps to uphold the value of like, why do I care about this thing? Um, but it is going to be really important to us that it's not it's not about keeping the floor price up and making sure that um, you know you can get as many followers as you can to keep the floor price up and to drive prices to be like a top collection. It's going to be much more so as are we rewarding fans with something that is valuable and are we upholding that value on the other side? And it's careful because there's always going to be speculation out there. Um, it's something that is inevitable and, and at some points I think can be both what determines success and failure uh, on both sides. But uh, I think just again going back to what this allows you to do and as we think about always comparing it back to the real world, those rare items as you think about you know, the jersey or, or the kit that somebody has hanging in their living room, um, that is something that is extra special because of a moment that they were at or because it's one of 10 because they happen to get that signature that day. And those are the types of things that we're trying to create in our virtual world and allow you to show off in front of others. What's the vision that you have for where Green Park Sports would fit in a metaverse? What's your understanding of, of that concept at the moment? And, and how, in other ways, is the company going to develop in the next few years? Yeah, so we, we say we want to be or, or we are the place for fans to meet up. Uh, and certainly there's ways that fans can, can go and join each other in an experience that maybe League Partner brings into a Roblox or a Fortnite or a Sandbox. Uh, but we are sports and esports from the ground up, and we augment live data in our experiences, which helps to drive our gameplay. And I think continuing to be the most authentic, a combination of listening to the fans and working with the rights holders, that's what's going to make us unique in this world. And so it's really bringing sports and esports or official sports and esports to the metaverse and being that authentic experience because we certainly hope to scale uh, in a very large way. And when we do that, it will benefit the rights holders and kind of everyone involved in sports uh, and hopefully being able to, to bring in those next generations that are a little bit more fleeting these days um, and not necessarily consuming sports in the same way that the last generation did. Yeah. And what do you see as being the biggest challenge for, for Green Park specifically, but also kind of for Web3 concepts? Uh, gaining some traction? I think the biggest thing is the world moves fast. Um, How do you both move towards the ball, but also not take your eye off the ball (laughs) that's in front of you? Um, Because, you know, if there's something to criticize and then something to, um, you know, commend, it's, it's really, whether it's us or a lot of newer companies out there, it's that there's so much changing right now. I think about like how exciting NIL was back in the States of like college players being able to monetize their likeness. Then all of a sudden blockchain and Web3 came along and nobody was paying as much attention to NIL anymore. And by the way, sports gambling is happening and like that was supposed to be the big thing. And it's really where is your focus and and can you evolve into where it's going? I think with Web3, 
the biggest piece is how do you not be fooled by easy money? And that is, that is what's going to be key. So when we're making decisions about um, what we're going to be launching, it's really about a start and proving something that we can scale longer term. And I think that's, that's going to be the goal is not being fooled by, oh, wow, this is going crazy. And maybe people are saying, why aren't you doing this? Whether it's investors or rights holders, whatever. Um, and so it's, it's a nice balance there that, that you really have to strike. Okay, that will do it for another Sports Pro podcast. Thank you to Tony Grillo for his time just there. Uh, thank you to Tom Basson. Thanks, Owen. And to Ed Dixon. Cheers, Owen. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming back. Uh, we have next week, I should say, a bit of a special episode. The latest and last edition of Sports Pro magazine is out now. Um, we're going to be moving on from the print world, and uh, it will be an exciting new era, but also. Uh, the previous one will be much lamented and um, Michael Long and I and maybe a couple of special guests will be reflecting on the history of Sportsman Magazine. That's in Tuesday's podcast, so listen out for that one. But um, until then, thanks to all of you for listening. The Sports Pro podcast is published by Sports Pro Media and we'll be back with you again very soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>